Welcome to the Conversation Cabin Podcast. I'm your fearless host, Farah. And for this episode, we delve into a bone-chilling true crime story that will send shivers down your spine. We are about to explore the baffling and disturbing case of an apparent murder of a family in land between the lakes, Kentucky. But this is no ordinary murder case. There are eerie whispers of a creature known as the Dogman lurking in the shadows. Prepare for a journey into the unknown as we uncover the details and try to understand this horrific crime or even if it happened. We'll examine the evidence, hear eyewitness accounts, and even explore the legends and folklore that have made this story the stuff of nightmares. In this episode, I'll explain every scary twist and turn, including the Dogman and its alleged involvement in the tragedy. We will differentiate between what is true and what is imaginary, assessing the mental repercussions this event has had on the close-knit neighborhood and the broader consequences for those who dare to traverse the shadowy woods of the LBL. So grab your headphones and brace yourself for a spine-tingling journey into the heart of darkness. Let's uncover the truth behind an alleged murder of a family and the possible existence of the Dogman in land between the lakes, Kentucky. This is Examining the Evidence. Did the Beast of the LBL commit an alleged murder? Stay tuned, cabin crew. I always want to set the scene for you listeners, so here we go. Located in western Kentucky and Tennessee, land between the lakes, or the LBL, is a picturesque and expansive area nestled between the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers. With over 170,000 acres of enchanting serene lakes and abundant wildlife, this region offers a unique blend of recreational opportunities and natural beauty. Land Between the Lakes is a great place for nature lovers and outdoor enthusiasts. There are lots of plants and animals, many trails and fishing spots and great viewpoints. Its history is just as impressive with evidence of Native American culture, old homesteads, 19th century ironworks. These remnants of the past provide a powerful reminder of how people have been connected to the land for centuries. However, despite its stunning landscapes and tranquil atmosphere, land between the lakes has a backdrop for mysterious and eerie tales. Legends of creatures like Bigfoot, 
Strange occurrences and unexplained phenomena have captured the imaginations of locals and visitors alike. Mid this tranquil but enigmatic backdrop, the alleged slaying of a family and the potential presence of the dogman have sent tremors through the neighborhoods. The picturesque landscape and the sinister has made land between the lakes an alluring area where splendor and gloom intertwine. In that darkness, the elusive beast of the LBL. There's lots of legends about the beast. One says it was a Native American shapeshifter. Another's about a man from Europe in the 1800s who got a mental illness passed down his family. And they stayed away from everyone until they just suddenly vanished. People thought something bad had happened to them, but when they checked, their house was empty. French explorers heard about a story creature called a loup garou from Shawnee fur traders. It's said to be a vengeful shaman who changed shapes and was killed by his own village for misusing his powers. He still roams the woods looking for revenge. In the early days of America, people heard strange howls in Kentucky forests and hunters disappeared. Bison roamed freely and sometimes people found their bodies with tears in their throats, partially eaten. To this day, as efforts are made to reintroduce bison to Kentucky, park rangers and herd managers occasionally discover missing calves. Recently, there have been multiple accounts of the creature. The most startling happened in 1973 with some students from Murray State University who were camping in the land between the lakes. One night, one of the group went into the forest to go to the bathroom and came back with a feeling of being watched and a strange noise from the woods. The student was worried it was a wild hog or something. The others thought it was just a wild animal as well. But the student was more sure that it was something strange and they all got more and more anxious as night fell. As the darkness descended, the campers began to hear a loud rustling coming from the fallen leaves. It was moving with incredible speed around the campsite. Anxiety started to take over the group of young men. They pointed their flashlights at the source of the noise, but couldn't see anything. Suddenly, a loud howl came from all around them like a wolf's, but with a sinister quality that sounded like mocking laughter. Briefly, two red eyes could be seen in the blackness, causing even more fear in the campers. The boys fled in terror and got into their Volkswagen bus. They wisely didn't stay to see what was chasing them. As they sped away along the road, they soon realized that they were being chased. In the dim glow of the bus's taillights, they observed a massive and shadowy figure racing closely behind them. Suddenly, the bus jolted with great force. They strained against the resistance, breaking free and racing out of the forest. They didn't stop 
until they reached the safety of Murray State Campus. After the students got back to campus, they discovered four deep claw-like gashes in the metal of the engine compartment cover at the back of the bus. This served as a powerful reminder of the terrifying experience they went through. And now we get to the heart of this episode. There is another widely recounted story of a gruesome discovery made in the 1980s involving a family who were camping in the area. The 80s was a great time for music, fashion, and culture. But when it came to solving crimes, things were much slower and more difficult. Back then, law enforcement had to do things the old-fashioned way. Without modern technology, tasks would have been more challenging. But even with these limitations, detectives still managed to solve cases they did this by using their expertise, perseverance, and available resources. According to the tale, police stumbled upon a horrifying scene inside a family's motorhome. The bodies of the family were described as severely mutilated, drenched in their own blood. Additionally, it is said that the young daughter's partially consumed body was found lodged in a nearby tree some 14, 15 feet high. All of the victims bore distinct and massive claw marks. Allegedly, the authorities chose to cover up this incident to protect the fragile tourist industry of the region at that time. I always look deep for my stories to give you as much detail as possible and what I found will shock you. I came upon an article that was written by a Jan Thompson, a third party who knew two of the men that were involved in this case. This is her account of the observations and conversations she had with these two law enforcement officers, word for word. They had just come from the crime scene down in the middle of LBL after being there for over eight hours. It was around three in the morning and they were taking a much-needed reality break. Two officers of the law. Two grown men who both appeared shaken beyond description. A mixture of fear and confusion, shock and disbelief emanated from them both. One was paler than the other, a deathly pallor over his skin, and it was this one, I'll name him Officer Adam, to protect their identities, that had to sit on the curb of the gas pumps, head between his legs, and expel the last bit of his stomach contents. The other officer, I'll name him Officer Bill, came in for some coffee for himself and a cup of water for his partner, then rejoined Adam outside. There were no other customers, so I went outside with them to see if I could offer some assistance with the ill man. He gladly took the few rollades I had extended in my hand, with his own shaky fingers he struggled to get them into his mouth. For quite a long while the only thing that was heard were the crickets in the nearby fields, the sounds of bugs hitting the fluorescent lights above us hanging from the gas station canopy, and the distant sound of highway traffic that was far and few between as it was in the wee hours of the morning. 
My mind was buzzing with various scenarios of the cause of their distress, a tragic car accident, possibly a motorcycle wreck, a boating mishap with drowned victims. A murder. A dead body discovered. Curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back, that's why the cat has nine lives. I don't remember sitting down, but after about 15 minutes of this hushed stillness I found myself beside them both on the curb staring out at the darkness of the nearby corn pastures, letting my mind paint pictures of imaginary traumas. Adam spoke first, breaking the silence of obscurity. I can't believe it. It's not possible. I just can't believe it. In a hushed agreement that was almost inaudible, Bill replied. I know, it was, is, it is so unbelievable, I've never seen anything like this before. A long pause, a deep breath, and he continued. Anything like this before. I looked at Bill and then at Adam, they were both gazing, open-eyed, unblinking, out into the inky color of the night. Adam's bottom lip was trembling slightly, and it wasn't from the slight chill in the late spring air. Something had filled them each with a congested fear. After a few more moments of silent reserve, my patience was rewarded with some slow, fragmented descriptions of their past eight hours. Bill turned his wide azure blue eyes towards me, they were glazed in bloodshot, tired, frightened eyes. With a weary, shaken voice he began to unfold a tale that would forever be embedded within my spirit, like a nasty shadow that lingers around a corner waiting to pounce, to awaken your inner fears once again. Why he decided to tell me of all people was beyond my comprehension, maybe it was an avenue he felt safe to travel upon, to get it off his chest, off his mind. They were both frequent customers and we knew each other on first-name basis, but to divulge such a torrid account of great magnitude, I can only say that the fear inside them both at that moment in time had to be released, eased, and extracted from their souls, or else they may have gone mad with unbalanced thoughts. Without interrupting, I sat entranced, listening to every word, absorbing them like an opiate, a spellbinding narcotic that hypnotized me into forgetting the world even existed for the next half hour or so. They had gotten a call to help with an investigation at one of the many rural campgrounds down in LBL. The tourist season was about to start in a few weeks, so as usual there were some early arrivals that had come to claim prime camping spots before the areas were overrun with tents, campers and travel trailers the sun was setting low in the sky when they arrived at the scene. Several other official vehicles were already there and there were many more to come as they would soon find out. Many coming from other counties and a few coming all the way from another state. Several of these to come were coroners from different counties. One coroner vehicle was already present as well as an ambulance, which would prove useless, as there was no one to save. The victims were all dead. Quite dead. Completely, totally, and thoroughly deceased. A young married couple that had come down to take it easy for a few days were the first to discover the ghastly scene. Neither one of them wanted to stay behind while the other went for help, so they both nervously traveled to the nearest town, Grand Rivers, and called the authorities. They did not return to LBL, they merely gave the arriving officer directions to the area of discovery and rented a local hotel room. With the sun going down, it got dark pretty fast, so there was a flurry of floodlights from the cruisers being pointed in all directions, along with the excited movements of $50 flashlights being held by nervous, restless hands, searching the trees, the ground, the leaves, the shadows. There was a parked motor home at the site, its frame being lit by a campfire close by, a fire that had almost went out on its own, but had been rekindled by the new crowd of men in uniforms so that they could have more light. 
The front and back doors to the home were open, one of the doors hanging by one hinge in a crooked slant. Through the windows, they could see zigzagged movements of luminosity as the beams from flashlights searched the interior. Bloody handprints slid down the thin metal walls close to the front door, and more bloody hand paintings could be seen along the length towards the back door. Their images dancing eerily in the firelight like some ancient tribal symbols. Adam and Bill did not even want to imagine what was inside the motor home, but then again, they would soon find out that it wasn't what was inside but what was outside that would change their lives forever. There was already crime scene tape placed in numerous, scattered parts of the area, and little white flags on metal stakes stuck into the ground marking evidence of ripped clothing, bodies and body parts, separated limbs, a pile of bowels, pieces of loose flesh clinging to muscle tissue. What used to be three bodies, that just hours before had been a happy family, on a happy vacation, to create happy memories for years to come, a father, a mother and a young son. The happiness was gone. Destroyed by a psychotic madman, or was it men? A murderous rage had taken place, one so abhorrently appalling that there were few witnesses to the scene that had kept their composure or held their recently eaten dinners down. At first sight, the victims appeared to be butchered by some unnameable weapon, possibly an axe, or a chainsaw. Upon further inspection, by the first arriving coroner, the wounds on the bodies were determined not to have been caused by a sharp instrument, but rather by some piercing, well-defined claws, and other wounds by some keen, mordantly long incisors. Wildcat, bear, wolves? The coroner shook his head in a baffled disagreement with each guess from the officers. The claw marks, for instance, on the back of the father's corpse were distinctively made by four long claws with a smaller digit, like a thumb, on the side, its span was wider than a man's print, wider and different than a bear's mark, with deep deliberate gouges in the flesh. Rake marks from an angry unknown source trying to grab its prey that was no doubt trying to escape. The wildcat and wolves theory was dismissed as the open wound marks were apparently made by a more grandiose animal source. The bite marks were much larger than any mountain lion, wolf, or coyote. Whatever did it had a longer snout and more sizable teeth. There was also indications in the larger areas of the cadavers of bite marks where the flesh, meat and bone had been yanked away from the body. Like a human who bites into an apple and leaves the impressions of his bite and teeth marks, so were the open wounds on these individuals. Bears, they aren't native to the area, but who knows, maybe a grizzly did sneak in some way, but that was far-fetched, he would have had to travel several states and cross several rivers to even get close to that part of Kentucky. Everyone present was betting on the bear hypothesis anyway, and no one even thought of anything else to be the cause of such a savage attack. A bear, it had to be a bear. From the back door of the motor home, an officer stepped down slowly, holding in his hands some type of garment. A dress. A small dress that would have fit a small girl of around five years old. He informed the onlookers that there were more little girls' clothing packed inside the coach. This meant there was a missing person, or an absent body, a member of the family. They all prayed she was still alive somehow, hiding somewhere. A new search began. As time went by, additional law enforcement employees arrived, as well as a few volunteer rescue squad members. Groups were spread out and assigned areas to examine and explore. Another coroner arrived to assist in the identification and causes of death, and much later a third one showed up, this one from a nearby state. All types of samples were placed in plastic bags, marked as evidence, and carefully stowed away.
As they were packaging up what appeared to be one of the father's arms, one of the doctors noticed something wrapped between the dead fingers. Some tweezers slowly untangled a clump of long, gray and brown hairs. This too was placed in a bag, marked and put away to be analyzed at a lab later. From somewhere in the nearby woods, about 50 yards from the campfire, a scream was heard. A man's shriek that turned into a long wail and then to whimpering. As others arrived, they could see by the gleam of several flashlights that the cop was holding his hat in one hand and his light in the other. There was blood on his face, the front of his shirt and on the brim of his hat. More blood could be seen dripping on him. It was coming from above. High in the trees, the flashlights swung, searching for the source of the mysterious bleeding. A very small hand could be seen dangling down from a tree limb way up high, as well as a slender lifeless leg that still had a white sock still on the foot. The missing child had been located. It had been Adam that the blood had trickled upon, hitting his hat first, making him look up, and then feeling the thick cold fluid sprinkling his face then sliding down to his neatly buttoned shirt. It had been Adam that had screamed. The little girl had apparently been carried up the tree and leisurely eaten upon while carefully laid across a large tree branch. More of the same long gray and brown hair was found sticking in the bark of the tree near her body. After about seven hours most of the officers were sent away as a new team of investigators arrived. They were told not to talk to anyone of the incident, especially not the media. I am sure that besides Adam and Bill, there were others who had to confess what they saw that night, if in fact this whole event ever really happened. Witnesses that had to divulge the awful secret of that atrocious discovery at one of the campgrounds at LBL. About a month after sitting outside with Adam and Bill that night, they stopped in again during one of my midnight shifts. They were both rather quiet, more serious in nature, not like before the incident where they would kid around while drinking their sodas and eating a snack or two. They had both aged in some odd way. Streaks of grey, that had not been there before, highlighted both of their heads of hair. Their faces had lines of worry and showed signs of stress. I would see them again many times afterwards, but on this particular evening, they informed me that they got word about some of the lab tests that were taken that dreadful night. The tests, on the saliva taken from the bite marks, and from the hair found on the man's fingers and in the tree bark, came back with an unknown species origin. The closest animal that they could be compared to was that of a Canis lupis, a wolf. Whether Adam and Bill had played an elaborate hoax on me, I'll never really know for sure but their sincerity and fear painted a picture of truth in their eyes and actions. There are several more stories that I have heard about this werewolf over in LBL that have been told to me over the years after this particular incident. There were several groups of Boy Scouts that had seen it. Several more campers, fishermen and boaters that had seen it from the safety of their boats, floating in some of the many bays that touched upon the shoreline. Hikers and bikers have heard its howling and have seen something stalking them while they were on rural trails, hiding amongst the trees and foliage. Hunters have run across deer carcasses that had been brutally torn apart. There was even a pair of curious gravestone rubbers, those that go out in search of century or more old tombstones then make rubbings by placing paper against the coarse stones and using a piece of charcoal to rub across it thus capturing the images and dates from the stones onto the paper, similar to when as a child you used to take a pencil and rub across a piece of paper on a penny or other coin to see the image of Lincoln or Jefferson. That had a fearful encounter with it at one of the old cemeteries. 
It had actually came up to the car as they were leaving and shook the back end of the vehicle up and down and left terrible scratch marks in the trunk lid as it tried to hold on to the little Toyota while the tires were spinning in the wet grass to get away. These two individuals didn't stop driving until they were about 40 miles away, only then did they dare stop to investigate the damage done. I myself have seen those scratches. Much too wide for any man to have made them. They looked like heavy metal garden rakes tracks. Though it will never be printed in newspapers, reported on the news, or confirmed by any official, the media will label it as nothing more than hoo-ha, pranks, myths, lies, or exaggerations. Such stories could not be allowed to circulate, as this region is dependent on the money from tourists, and that cannot be risked. Again, that was a written account from Jan Thompson, who knew two of the law enforcement officers who responded to the scene. Whew. What are you thinking, cabin crew? Do you feel this was a murder that really took place? And if it did, was it at the claws of the beast of LBL? Or do you think that it's a made-up story? I'll tell you what I think. This is the first time I can truly say that there was something that caused the death of a family. A tragic event that is recounted in great detail. Jan's account with that much detail, heart, conversation. I don't think she created the story. What would be her gain? She never appeared on any TV shows or documentaries traveling the globe with her story, making money, becoming famous. Listeners, I wanted to get someone to look over this case with me, and I could think of no one better than Amanda, a dear friend and fellow podcaster of the renowned One Nothing Podcast. Now, first... If you don't know Amanda, let me just clue you in on some little tidbits. So Amanda, in my eyes, is truly exceptional in her field as she fearlessly dives into tales surrounding the lives and demises of unfortunate victims, whether by fangs, freak accidents, or the enigmatic hand of fate. Her relentless pursuit of truth and her unique storytelling ability have captivated listeners worldwide. Now, today, I seek Amanda's valuable insights on a matter of great intrigue, a potential murder at the land between the lengths, and given her expertise and experience, I'm eager to know what she believes could be responsible for this mysterious event. She has an inquisitive mind profound knowledge, and I can expect nothing short of a fascinating analysis into the depths of this perplexing case. So without further ado, let's delve into Amanda's thoughts and uncover the secrets that she might be able to unveil about what or who could be to blame for this, again, alleged murder at Land Between the Lakes. And remember, we're going at this of if this murder did occur. So Amanda, hello, my friend. Hi, Farah. It's so great to be here with your cabin crew. And I'm so excited to be a part of this. I am so 
happy that you can come on and give me your opinion. I've been so pumped since I asked you. First of all, let me just say, when I first read that, I, I think you know by now about me that I just tell the stories, but the way that I want to tell them, that's the way that I want to do it. But I'm never saying if I 100% think that something is true. I put everything out there for my listeners to gather their own opinion. But from just me reading what happened to these people, again, if this murder did really happen, Amanda, my God, was this a bloody crime scene? What do you think? It was absolutely grueling, and I completely agree with what you said, and I just want to point out one of the things that I love so much about your podcast is that you don't tell listeners what to think or feel. You'll just present things and let people form their own opinions, which I love so much. But reading through this excerpt, this is just so horrific, and if anyone, for any reason, that wouldn't be an accurate account of what happened, then somebody's got some really evil tendencies to want to like fabricate that because who could think of something how horrendous as what's enclosed in that exactly and the one thing that really stood out to me when you looked over the case the crime scene was the fact that there was a half-eaten little girl 14 15 feet up in a tree now I know you're more of the expert as far as with the stories that you cover cases where animals have been to blame for somebody's injury or death. But for example, the gentleman that I heard on your podcast about two or three weeks ago that was mauled by a grizzly bear and his unbelievable story of survival. So with that being put out there, bears don't take their prey up into a tree, Amanda, and continue to devour them or like, right? So very untypical. There are some cases in black bears where if there is some kind of competing predator who's trying to take that and that's the only solution is to get it up high away from them, they'll utilize that. But that along with all of the other details such as the scattering of the organs and the body parts, the fact that nothing was really eaten or predated upon, that's very unlikely for black bear behavior. Black bears are usually going to attack out of territory or out of predation, and this obviously was not a predation. We can attest to that because everything was still there, just strewn about. And territorial seems very strange considering the detail of the door nearly being ripped off the hinge. It's very compelling. I don't know of any bears that would feel compelled in a territorial attack to go through a home to do strike me as bear behavior. And I'm not trying to make light of this situation at all, but I'm sure that you're familiar with this fictional movie that came out not too long ago, Cocaine Bear. But it's about a bear that's all hyped up on cocaine and he's vicious and crazy. It was a disgusting movie, but he was tearing people apart. And with all of that, it's still just not typical bear behavior. So your first take of looking this over just lay it out. What do you feel could be responsible for this, Amanda? Absolutely. As you said, I want to preface this with I'm not a bear biologist or an expert in any way. And all of my opinions are just pulling from experience throughout my time researching bear behavior and bear victims. This does not scream bear behavior to me in any sense that I can rationalize. 
even the cocaine bear movie, it's a really exciting movie, but it, in truth, it's a really boring story of a bear who fell upon some cocaine and then died right after. So it's highly exaggerated and sensationalized <laughs> for the media like everything else. Even with drugs involved, this does not seem like something that a bear would do. The wounds are not consistent. With bears, in any circumstance apart from predation, they're just trying to exterminate a threat. So as soon as they've got you to the point where they think you're dead, that's it for them. They're happy. The threat is gone. They don't continue to proceed to ravage somebody to the point where body parts are strewn within yards of the attack site. Now that compared to the location that we're looking at, being that they're in Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken, that obviously is not grizzly bear country. So that leaves us with black bears, which statistically are even less likely to cause this kind of an attack. Black bears are much more skittish, and they typically don't cub defend like grizzly bears will. So there's not really anything. I tried really hard because you know me. I'm a natural skeptic. I tried really hard to rationalize this as bear behavior. But based on what was included in that report, there's nothing I can definitively say makes me think that a bear would be capable of doing this to this many people without any evidence of it. And that's the other thing. If you look at the fact that when they got that saliva test back and it said that it was an unknown species, there was a tiny bit of DNA that was close to the Canis lupus, which is the wolf species. And again, we're talking Kentucky. There are no wolves. Going back over the wounds of these people, you're absolutely right. This seemed more like something that was angry, ravaging, not territorial in a sense, because this is also by campgrounds where not many animal species frequent a campground as there's so many people coming and going. There's campers everywhere, tents, fires, music. This was in the 80s. And at that time, this was a very frequented tourist spot. When you look at the wounds... Again, these people weren't necessarily eaten. It was flesh ripped, like away from an arm or leg. It was torn away from the bone. The thing was ravaging. It seemed it wanted to kill. But also, Amanda, in your opinion, can one animal go through four people? So it depends on the determination. It's definitely happened. I can't say with black bears. I don't know of any accounts, to my knowledge, of multiple people being killed by a black bear. Grizzly bears have a couple scenarios where they've killed multiple people. Tigers have definitely been an animal that have killed multiple people. But something that stands out to me about the wounds more so than anything else is the way they were described as four long slashes and then what looked like a thumb, like a prehensile fifth digit. And that is not something that bears will typically do. They will slash and they will rip with their teeth, but they don't really utilize uh, like a hand when they're attacking. They're just grabbing and tearing and stepping and stomping more. So there's nothing about this really screams bear. Bears do like campgrounds, so not outside of the realm of possibility. I agree. I mean, yes, of course, there's bears that love campgrounds, but as far as the mutilation and the absolute tearing apart, let's remember this little girl was torn in half, some of her body down below the rest of her body up in a tree. It just doesn't seem typical. And what did you think about the fur samples? So I found that very strange, too, because bear fur may not be distinguishable on its own with some loose strands, but it's really easy to pull DNA off of bear fur, and that's how they identify bear victims all the time. 
So it's really baffling that they would find some kind of fur. And if it doesn't link to a bear and they don't have an answer of what it is, we have all the DNA for all these different animals on hand. I just, I don't know enough about the dog man apart from what I've learned about you to really know their tendencies, but this just seems like a really savage attack and it seems fast. It doesn't seem like something that was dragged on and on for 20 minutes like a bear attack would. This seems like something that came in pissed and just started ripping people apart. Yeah, and I wanted to do this story because it's always been out there about this alleged attack and about the alleged cover-up. And I thought Jan's recount was really important, her conversation with these two law enforcement officers. We all know the small towns where the guys that work in your local police department, they don't just seem like people that would make up a story like this detailed, but... What are your thoughts about that? Do you think this crime even took place at all? Like I said, if anyone were to make up something like this, they'd be pretty demented to be able to think up this kind of horrible graphic storyline. But even further than that, just the fact that there's so many people, you have law enforcement agencies who are involved. It sounds like essentially sworn to silence almost of talking about it told they're not allowed to talk to anybody about it. It's so hard to track down whether these things happen when everybody's hushed like that. I mean, it makes it so hard for victims to feel comfortable coming forward because they have so much at stake with their jobs and everything. But just the fact that upon arriving, officers are like bent over vomiting from what they've witnessed and the total devastation and bloodshed. I don't know. I think this might have really happened and I don't think this was by a bear, but I'm sold on, there's too many details. Exactly. And again, I'm just talking to put out my thoughts for everyone to take it for what they will. But think about it. This was in the early 80s. This wasn't the time yet of podcasting and YouTubing, social media. This lady never came out publicly. Actually, where I got this excerpt from was a site where that person was forwarded her recount from a different site and it was pulled down because of all the negative feedback. This was a small town, a small area in Kentucky, a campground. So you have to think about it like that. Was there really an opportunity for a cover up at that time? Yes, I definitely believe so. And it seems quite easy to cover it up just because you would have only had so many people involved at that time. And you probably didn't really have an electronic record of things. Yeah, you're right. And another thing, do you think that's any possibility of cougar or puma or anything like that could have been responsible for this? So there's definitely eastern cougars that are popping up in Kentucky, but cougar attacks will look nothing like that. Cougars are actually very characteristic in the way that they try to kill by driving a wedge between the vertebrae of your neck to essentially decapitate you internally. So they do that. You can't move. They just eat you at that point because you're just, you can't fight back. There's no record of uh, any kind of large cat just decimating their prey to the degree that this is and then not eating it. No cougar attack I've ever heard of or seen before. Hmm. Okay. So we can roll out any wild cat. All right. Well, Thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on and giving us your thoughts. I really appreciate it. And cabin crew, go follow Amanda and her One Nothing podcast. 
You're on all streaming platforms, right? We are. And I would love it so much if anyone listening would give us some reviews because we are suffering in that department. <laughs> yes. Crew, go give Amanda's podcast a listen and write a review or give a rating one sentence. Great episode. That's two words. All you need to do. It helps us get new listeners and one nothing podcast is on TikTok and Instagram. Let me spell it for you. It's W O N as in Nancy space N as in Nancy O T H I N G. It's one nothing. I highly recommend following her show so you can get notifications of new episodes. And what day do your episodes drop, Amanda? So every other Tuesday, and we just had one drop yesterday, so just count forward from there because I don't know the dates by heart, but we do every other Tuesday. We are looking at some point in the future to starting a Patreon where we're going to release special weekly episodes, but I need a little bit more demand to get that going, so that's in the future. Of course, and remember, Amanda, me, along with Courtney and Vicky, are going to be starting our next series coming up on Tuesday, August 1st. For the Paranormal Project Presents Tuesday Top Terror, we're each going to be covering an alien species. Amanda is actually the first one to start. Her topic is Nordic aliens, but not to give them too much, Amanda, just a little teaser, but tell us a little bit about Nordic aliens. What would you say? So I would say they are a lot more prevalent in today's media than you would ever know. And I'm really excited to open your eyes about some of the things that you've probably seen or watched or heard that are about Nordic aliens. So remember, listeners, next Tuesday, August 1st, 7 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Eastern. They are always live. You're going to be for the next five or six Tuesdays. You will be with us for Tuesday Top Terror alien species and until then amanda we will talk to you next tuesday thank you so much excellent thank you this incident is a reminder that there are still some mysteries in this world that we may never understand something out of this world was the cause of this tragedy and it will never be known but we do know that the family suffered a great loss and that their legacy should not be forgotten. We must remember that this case is one of many unsolved mysteries and that it will remain in our minds forever. The mythical creature known as the Beast of LBL has been depicted by self-proclaimed eyewitnesses as a towering figure standing at approximately seven feet tall with a resemblance to Bigfoot and wolf-like features. However, Carlin Lewis, a public affairs specialist from the U.S. Forest Service, has stated that there never has been any substantial or reliable evidence to support the existence of the beast. Mr. Lewis stated the following quote, We have no evidence records documentation of any validated sightings of the beast some of our staff had worked on land between the lakes for many years 
A lot of them know every nook and cranny. They've never seen anything that would point back to a beast existing, Lewis explained. Now, if you're interested in watching a movie based on the beast of LBL, one was made by local business people Lee Vervoort and Spencer Ballantyne, although not many natives are happy about the movie being made at all. David Nickel, a citizen who resides in the area, was quoted as saying, We did have a rich heritage living here between these two rivers since the late 18th century. And it's just disturbing to have somebody come in, making up things and then ascribing it to us. End quote. And that concludes this episode exploring the mystifying legend of the Beast of LBL. We explored the supernatural, and it is important to remember that this creature is just one of many that have captivated people's imaginations. Even today, there are numerous reports of encounters with similar creatures often referred to as dogmen, various parts of the world. These sightings continue to baffle and bewilder researchers and enthusiasts alike. If you have ever personally encountered the beast of LBL or any other type of dogman and have a story to tell, I'd love to hear it. You can email me at theconversationcabin at gmail.com. Your account of the event could be of great help in understanding these curious creatures and uncovering the secrets that they keep. Thank you for joining me on this fascinating journey. And remember, the unknown can be both thrilling and terrifying, but it is through sharing our stories that we can begin to uncover the truth. Stay curious, my friends. Thanks for joining me, Cabin Crew, for tonight's episode of the Conversation Cabin Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3, Examining the Evidence. Did the Beast of LBL murder a family? What do you all think? I hope you enjoy diving into the realms of cryptid in the case that I've been wanting to cover for some time. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so when you're done listening... I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review, but I also want to know your thoughts on the episode as far as fact or fiction. Your feedback helps us reach new listeners and continue to produce quality content for you. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Sharing our podcasts and episodes with your friends, family, and fellow enthusiasts is the best way to show your support. So feel free to spread the words and let others join in on the conversation. I'm here every Thursday bringing you more mind-bending content. You can find us on all major streaming platforms, so be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. I want to take a sec to say thanks for your support. Each episode of the Conversation Cabin podcast takes loads of research and writing and your involvement really means a lot. As you can see, 
I don't just write a story and read it. I try to make this a true experience by adding different voices if and whenever I can, sound effects, different music for different scenes. Remember, if you have a spine-chilling experience or encounter of your own that you'd like to share on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Email at theconversationcabin at gmail.com and who knows, your story might make its way into a future episode. Stay connected with us on Instagram and TikTok at The Conversation Cabin for behind the scenes content updates and sneak peeks to all of my family, friends, and supporters, whether you're on Instagram, TikTok, you listen through Spotify, Apple, Audible. I cannot thank you enough for being such a supporter of The Conversation Cabin. And just know that you're all friends to me and I love you dearly. Thank you so much for listening. Courtney and I are collaborating with a new channel on YouTube set to air on Wednesday, August 16th called Haunts in the Cabin, which will be filled with so much paranormal, extraterrestrial, you name it, we're going to cover it. And I think you all will love it because I don't think there's anything like that on YouTube right now, especially two badass women in podcasting. So make sure to go subscribe to Haunts in the Cabin on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook where we also stream live there. But at the same time, also add us on Instagram. If you've been following The Paranormal Project since April, that's my collab with Courtney, Vicky, and Amanda. Next in the series, we each have an alien species that we are going to cover. The first episode of that will be live on Tuesday, August 1st. So do not forget, it always starts at 7 p.m. PM Central Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and from there, every Tuesday after that will be a different alien species, and at the end, we will be doing alien abduction stories. So make sure that you mark your calendars for Tuesday, August 1st, first episode of the five, six-part series of the alien species. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of our curious community. Remember to keep your mind open and your sense of wonder alive. Until next time, Cabin Crew, I'm Farah, signing off from the Conversation Cabin Podcast. And remember, explore your strange.